You are listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, where it's all about responding with confidence to the legal, financial, and personal challenges created by disability, unexpected illness, or simply aging in general. Join us weekly as elder law attorneys Tim Takis, Barbara McGinnis, Chris Johnson, and other members of the Takis McGinnis Elder Care Law Team talk about the tools, techniques, strategies, and services that will make the elder care journey easier for everyone involved. Get ready, because aging starts now. Welcome to Aging Starts Now. In this episode, number 23, I'm your host, Barbara McGinnis, and I'm talking with public benefit specialist Joshua Bay about the 10 things you need to know about 10 care. Morning, Josh. Good morning. So don't you think the great place to start would be, let's just define what 10 care is. All right. So uh, 10 care is the state's Medicaid program. So Tennessee's Medicaid program, it was actually established around 1994. And it's uh, it's under the federal waiver that authorized a deviation from the state's Medicaid rules. So I think some of us like me or um I'm old enough to remember when Tennessee Medicaid actually became TennCare and the changes in the effect that it had on uh, our healthcare system in Tennessee. So it's it's been a process of evolution. How do you become eligible for TennCare in long-term care? So there's three different categories, and one of the category, which is the technical category, you, you kind of just about qualify for it. No, you know, no questions asked, you know, are you a resident of the state of Tennessee? Are you a, uh, are you a, a citizen? Uh-huh. And uh, so that's like the, the biggest parts of it. The technical part is the residency and uh, the citizenship. That's the, that's the two biggest technical parts. Now the medical part, uh, which is the PAE and the PASAR, and I kind of said those in the in the wrong order. It's actually the PASAR and the PAE. Um, and then it's the financial category, uh, income and net worth. Right. Okay. So for technical eligibility, do, does it matter where the person is living? Or it does not matter where the person is living. When it comes to choices, one, which is long-term care, it does matter. They need to be living in the nursing home. <laughs> and a nursing home contracted with the state, right? Correct. A contracted, a Medicaid contracted facility. So um, when we're proving that medical necessity that you referenced a minute ago, and there was you know, two parts to that, the medical necessity and proving a need for inpatient care, there's two assessment tools that... Um, Basically, TenCare one requires completed, and one of them we, we refer to as the PASAR, and that actually stands for pre-admission screening and resident review. And in that assessment, what is uh, what's actually being looked for is to make sure that a placement in a nursing home is appropriate. We're trying to screen out if there's significant mental illness or developmental disabilities that would cause the resident 
to need alternative placement, that alternative placement would be more appropriate for that resident than the nursing home. So that's right. what PASAR is all about. And that usually happens before someone even sees a nursing home bed. Like that happens in the hospital for the most part. Right. Um, the PAE is pre-admission evaluation. And I like to think of it as pre-admission into the Ten care or Medicaid program, and that's the assessment tool that if, if we're in a long-term care facility, it's the staff at the facility that's completing this assessment tool. They submit it to Ten care and it's a weighted, scaled scoring system. That went in place, oh, maybe back to, as long ago as 2012, so it's been part of our system for quite some time. And you need to score on these assessment elements, you need to score at least a nine out of a possible 26 points. So the more points you score, the higher you score, the more dependent you are. If uh, the lower your scores, if you do not score the requisite nine, it indicates that you may not need nursing home placement. There's some wiggle room in there. Um, and, and that's called the safety determination part. So if you don't score a nine, but you score at least a seven or an eight, it, it's a method, it's a form of course, but it's a method of injecting some subjective um, information to determine whether or not there is an alternative safe place for the resident to live, or do they really need to live in the nursing facility, in the long-term care nursing facility? And then the third way to get a, an approved PAE would be a hospice election. So there is an assumption that if you're receiving hospice benefits, you meet the criteria to live in a long-term care facility. Correct. All right. W what about those income limits, Josh? What are they now? So the income limits for the Medicaid applicant is $2,349. And uh, for the, the, the community spouse, um, they do have an income uh, limit, a maximum and a minimum. The minimum is $2,155 and the maximum is $3,216. When you start looking at income limits for the applicant, that's not a, if you have more than $2,349, you, you can't qualify for 10Care. What 10Care will do is they'll say that you need what's called a qualifying income trust, which short a QIT. So uh, an example is, you know, you have $2,500 in gross income. And just clarify that 10Care counts gross. So if your gross income is above $2,349, you'll need a qualifying income trust. So an example is this is if your income, your gross income is $2,500, you'll need a qualifying income trust. Okay. And go ahead. No, no, I was just thinking, uh, I need a, a qualified income trust. That may sound scary to people. Right. Uh, and, and in reality, that qualifying income trust is really just a, a checking account that you will use to, to funnel money from your account that receives your income mm -hmm. to the QIT, then to the facility. Okay. So it just, 
it, it's a it's a checking account that you're going to ultimately pay the nursing home from. Correct. All right. So just to clarify for people, gross versus net income. Net's what hits your bank account. Gross is before, uh, like if you have Social Security income, it's before your Medicare premiums come out, and it's before any uh, taxes would be withheld. Correct. That's gross. That's not what you see in your bank account. Exactly. That does trip up a lot of people, doesn't it? It does. It does. And we actually have to make that, you know, just make that clarification a lot with clients is it's your gross income. And again, you don't see your gross. Your gross is not what goes into your checking account. Right. So if I were over-resourced, if I had more than the um, $2,000 limit for resources, could I just park that in my QIT? Not a substantial amount. I mean, sometimes, you know, if you're, you know, at twenty five hundred dollars and you need to get down to less than two thousand, you can move over, you know, money into your QIT if you if you have to have a QIT because money in the QIT does go to the facility. But but if you're well over the two thousand dollars in resource limit, no, you, you shouldn't put that into the QIT. Right. That's not a good place to put an inheritance or something. Right. That's, that's not what a QIT is for. It's not what a QIT is for. It is for income to go go to and then to pay the facility. And again, that's another one of those clarifications that, that we have to make is it is an income trust and not a trust to put resources in. Right. It's not like a special needs trust or something. Right. So if we're talking about it's countable resources that we can have $2,000 in countable resources if we're the applicant. What are some other examples of exempt resources that an applicant can have and still qualify for 10 care? So some of the exempt resources that an applicant can have and still qualify for 10 care, it is a homestead property, one vehicle, personal property, such as, you know, things in your home, uh, and, and not of substantial value. So if you have a expensive coin collection that's valued at a lot of money, that could be countable towards your towards your resources. But if it's small coins that doesn't have a uh, valuation on it, then that may not be uh, it may not be be countable and could be considered exempt. And also pre-funded funerals and burial plots. And with the funerals, you have to make sure that sure that they're irrevocably assigned to the funeral home and that they're itemized, meaning 10 care can see exactly what you're paying for. And it needs to match what you've paid for that irrevocable funeral. I hear you. So what you're saying is you can't go and pay the funeral home $25,000 for mama's funeral and expect to only use 15 and think you're going to get 10 back after the funeral. That doesn't work, does it? That does not work. <laughs> that $10,000 overage is considered countable. Right. So, um, and, and I know there are, there are some other things that could be exempt. There's some unique circumstances like businesses and farms and farm equipment and th- those right. kind of things. But this list right here, this is the most common. This is what you'd see a lot of people, uh, that's what they have as their exempt resource 
line up. One of the problems about the homestead, though, is they don't really allow you to keep money to pay for your homestead if you have a mortgage or taxes, insurance, utilities. Um, if you're a single applicant and you have a homestead, you're allowed to have that homestead, but you don't have any other money to maintain that property. Correct. That's another thing that we see um, trips up some folks sometimes. It is. And that, and, and that's one of the questions, you know, like you say that. So so what do we do now? You know, we can't afford to upkeep the house or the applicant can't afford to upkeep the house. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. And um, and that leads me to some of the um, some some families think, well, let's just put it up for sale during the Medicaid process. And that could have an adverse uh, effect on it being countable or excluded. It loses so, exemption status when you put it up for sale right right so that's one of the things again you may want to you know think about before you actually put the house up for sale is to think about how you know how will it affect the medicaid process and it'll take an exempt asset to accountable asset unless you're married unless you're married and, and there's some things that are different for married applicants and the house is one of them right yes ma'am because you got the house can be owned by the person that's still living in the community. Very creatively, we call that our community spouse. And that person may have their own income or they may be allocated income from the institutionalized spouse, the person in the nursing facility applying for Medicaid. And transfers between spouses does not... Um, uh, disqualify them. It's not subject to that five-year look-back rule. That's a, a thing that people don't really understand, um, that you can transfer the house to the community spouse. So that person owns it all by themselves. But it doesn't really work with just money, right? Right. So um, during the Medicaid application, it is 100% okay to transfer the house to the community spouse only. And, you know, you can move money around to the community spouse only, but it's still going to be considered countable. And that's one of the clarifications that we have to make with, uh, with, with families as well is just because the applicant or the community spouse owns, whether it's a checking account or it's an investment and they've in the, and the applicant has never owned the property or they may have, you know, um, they may have owned the property before the marriage. TenCare is still going to consider, you know, those investment accounts or checking accounts or life insurance policies, countable assets. Again, even if they owned it prior to the marriage or even if the applicant never had never had ownership in it. Yeah, that's a real uh you know, bubble buster for a lot of people that come in and say, oh, I inherited this money from my mom. Do you mean I really, it really counts towards my husband's 10 care application for spend down? And we have to say, well, yes, it does. And unless it's been uh, protected in some other manner, like a trust or something at some point. Um, The other thing to consider about a married applicant is the applicant 
for 10 care still is limited to $2,000 in countable assets, but that community spouse is not. And we're going to talk, we need to talk a little bit about how much that community spouse can keep in countable resources. Correct. That's very important. That, that, part, that part of it is very important because it's not a set number. And, and uh, once you get to a certain amount, it can get confusing. So a, um, the maximum amount is $128,640 that they can keep, the maximum amount. But if you only have $100,000 in total countable assets as a couple, that means the community spouse can only keep $50,000. Right. So that would consider it split 50-50. But if you have $500,000 in total countable assets as a couple, the community spouse can only keep that maximum of $128,640. Yeah. So then you lose that 50-50 and then you get to the maximum. And so the real key in that math equation is knowing what countable resources are and adding them all up as of the correct date. What, what, what is the definition of accountable resource? Um, and then adding them up on the, on the correct date. And then you know whether we're dividing it in half and, or if we're saying half gets maxed out at this 128,000. And that number usually changes each year too, not by a lot, but it does change over time, doesn't it? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And that correct date uh, for for a choices one you know nursing home application is the date that that applicant went into the nursing home and was considered considered in a facility for at least thirty days, and the thirty days can actually start if they were in the hospital. Uh-huh. That thirty day continuous confinement can actually start when they were in the hospital, but the actual snapshot date is the date that they went into the facility. Oh, okay. Well, so again, if they go into the facility, and, and and the good thing about this is, you know, you can find those in bank statements. <laughs> you know, you can look if they go into the hospital on again seven twenty seven twenty twenty. That's when ten care is supposed to start counting your resources. And sometimes ten care they'll use either be, the beginning of the date of the bank statement or the end of the date of the bank statement, and that can actually throw off your spin down a lot. Yeah, in, so, your, in your snapshot date. That's one of those one of those uh, little tidbits, a best practice tidbit that uh, you know you're really able to show your expertise in, and and sometimes why folks really need a specialist to help them with this. We got a couple of more of the top ten to go. I think we're at about number um, eight. And, and that's to know that TenCare is a cost-sharing program. So if even when you um, are qualified and you're approved to receive this TenCare long-term care benefit, you're in a long-term care facility, you're approved for TenCare to help pay for your cost of monthly care, you can still expect to pay something. Um, there's a few people that pay zero, but most people pay something. And that something is called their personal liability amount or 
abbreviated as PLA. That's their liability amount. And that's the, uh, from their gross income, less the allowable deductions, which are usually like medical insurance premiums and their personal need allowance. If they're married, there may be a, a, an allocation to that community spouse. But then the rest of it's going to go to go to the nursing facility, and that's your share of cost. And again, that's something that's uh, determined from your gross income. All right, we, we're asked about gifting as a spin-down strategy frequently. What do you got to say about gifting? So you actually can gift and still qualify for TinCare. So that's one of the myths that people, you know, if – if you get something away, you'll never qualify for 10 care. Or, or another myth is that you can give away $15,000 and qualify for 10 care. So one of the things with gifting, um, it, can also, it can also be used as a spend down strategy as well. But one of the things for gifting is who are you gifting to? If you're gifting to a disabled adult child, meaning they are SSDI approved, and you can, you know, of course, you know, prove that to TenCare, then you can gift to them, and TenCare will not consider it a uh, a uh, penalizable gift, meaning that that time period of TenCare you can't qualify for vendor payment to the facility because you gift. TenCare will not penalize you for that. But uh, as part of a spin down strategy. Let's just say you don't have any disabled children and you and you just want to, you know, give give money or a home or life insurance policy to your children. TenCare is going to say, OK, well, you can do that, but but we're going to penalize you for a certain amount of months that that you can't qualify for TenCare. Yeah. Yeah. And there actually is a method to to their madness. Any gift in the last five years, that's the look back period that you hear about. Um, Any gift in the last five years of actually countable or exempt assets, it doesn't matter. The penalty divisor that's set by 10 care converts the dollar amount of the gift into a time frame of ineligibility. And I think for you, when you were talking about that strategy, you can use that rule, that statement of rules to your benefit if you're trying to accelerate eligibility. Correct. Correct. Um, and then, then the last thing we probably need to, to touch on, it, of course, is estate recovery. That That's what people worry about sometimes the most. They worry about estate recovery. Correct. So estate recovery is real. We always say that to our clients. Estate recovery is real. And, it you know, it's fairly documented uh, that, you know, estate recovery does happen. Uh, but some of the myths that a state recovery, you know, uh, people think that that uh, that the nursing home recovers and that's not and that's not necessarily true. The nursing home just wants a payer source, right. either either a public benefit is paying or your private paying. You don't have to worry about the nursing home. And then some people think that 10 care may come and recover on the house while the applicant is still alive or if the community spouse is still alive. So that doesn't happen either. Um, 
Tencare recovers through the probate process and they can only recover from uh, what what is owed to them from the applicants. Uh, the applicants debt. Yeah, the applicant's estate. So whatever. So the applicant has to have passed away. Uh, we would have had to go to probate, which is where we go to the court to administer their estate. Um, it's highly, um, it's not necessarily, it's not very likely, I guess I should say, that people that are on TenCare have much of an estate, but they could have a house. Correct. And a house can be converted to liquid money that the state can recover from. So there are exceptions, like you mentioned, the surviving spouse or a disabled child, a minor child. There's some other exceptions that have to do with uh, siblings and equitable interests and hardship. Um, But all of it, it has to go through probate. They cannot recover while the applicant's still alive. And it's only going to be from the assets owned by the uh, applicant or recipient of the 10 care benefit. Correct. And that, you know what, we could probably do a whole podcast on a state recovery because there's so much to talk about there. Case law, a lot of fascinating case law. And, and maybe we'll do that. But anyway, Josh, I thank you for your expertise in this area and all you do every day for for our clients to make a very difficult process uh, easier and uh, more efficient for them. So we're going to wrap it up. We're going to wrap this one up and we'll be back. We'll talk about uh, what if you need 10 care in uh, the community setting. We'll talk about that next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast. For more information about today's show, visit tn-elderlaw.com, click on the free resources tab, and then click on Aging Starts Now. You'll find the show notes there. And while you're at it, why not check out all the free resources available at tn-elderlaw.com? Document downloads, the Tagus McGinnis blog, educational videos, informative articles, helpful links, a TV show, and more. It's all there free for the taking. If you enjoy listening to the Aging Starts Now podcast, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave us a review. It's easy to do on whatever app you use to listen. We would love your feedback on the show. Aging Starts Now. We'll be back next week with more candid discussions about challenges created by aging, disability, and unexpected illness.